And would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5. It is uh, almost incredible to believe that it was three months ago since we were in the book of Ephesians. It was on uh, March 15th that uh, preached the last message that we preached in this series on Ephesians. So consequently, we'll have to do a little bit of review, but very quickly, I trust, this morning. But I think as we look at our world and our nation, by all accounts, it seems very evident that the family in Western civilization is in trouble. I'm personally convinced that a significant root of the problems that we're seeing played out for us in living color on uh, CNN and Fox News and whatever news channel you might happen to watch, that those, the root of those problems, especially in urban areas, is the breakdown of the family. It's evident in several key statistics, and let me just share them with you. I think, for example, the divorce rate. Globally, globally, worldwide, the divorce rates doubled from 1970 to 2008. In the United States, there are 2.9 divorces for every 1,000 persons in most recent statistics. Regarding marriage rates, while the divorce rates are higher than they have ever been, uh, I do understand that there's been a leveling off and even a decline in divorce rates, but that coincides with the fact that marriage rates are lowest than they've ever been in record, since they've been recording it. In 150 years of recording marriages in the U.S., we now stand at the lowest rate of all time. And while marriage rates have declined, cohabitation rates have increased. In 1968, 1968, so back in that <laughs> previous era of terrible civil unrest, one-tenth of one percent, one-tenth of one percent of 18 to 24-year-olds 24, 24 lived together without being married. Those aged 25 to 34, it rose all the way up to two-tenths of one percent. And now, in 2018, 50 years later, 9.4 percent of 18 to 24-year-olds and f- almost 15 percent of f- 25 to 34-year-olds live together without being married. And, correspondingly, single-parent households have also increased dramatically. In 2019, in the United States alone, 23%, almost one in four children were were raised or being raised in single-parent households in the United States. That's three times greater than the the, the global average of 7%. It's even worse in some of our minority communities. In the African-American community, 68% of all children are in single-parent households. In the Latino community, it's 41%. And so when you see these statistics, and they are just like, you know, black and white statistics. They're cold. They're, they're, they're calloused, aren't they? But when you see those statistics and then you look at what's going on in our world, you have to to come to the conclusion there's some kind of a connection there. There's got to be some kind of a connection. I saw an interesting uh, detail the other day. I shared in the um, Friday devotional a little bit of the life of William Bradford and what he went through. William Bradford, who came across uh, 
on the Mayflower and the first governor of the Plymouth Colony, the Plymouth Plantation. Uh, William Bradford, shortly after he was born, his dad died. And uh, when he was two years old, his mother remarried, but when, or when he was four years old, his mother remarried, and then when she remarried, for some reason, she sent him to live with his grandfather. Within two years, his grandfather died, and so he's shuffled back to his mother. Shortly after he shuffled back to his mother, his mother died. And now he's an orphan at six years, almost seven years of age, and so he's sent to live with a couple of uncles who were never married and had no children. So here he was alone as a child, living with a couple of uncles, and that's how he grew up. And when he was, in a, when he was a young uh, teenager, he came to know Christ and got connected with a, uh, a separatist congregation in England. That is a non-Church of England congregation in, Eng in, uh, in, his, in, his in the area where his uh, uncles were living. And, and he said, William Bradford said, that he, fe he felt like he, f listen, get this, he finally found a family. He finally found a family. Now, the point is this. When you think about the, the problems of the family, the breakdown of the family in the United States, and then you see correspondingly all of the mayhem and, and look at who is participating in the mayhem and the crises, you find that so many of these people are, they're like in a big, a big club. They're, if I can use the term, they have found a family, but a, dis, a dysfunctional family, uh, a terribly messed up family, and they wreak their mayhem accordingly. Why the breakdown? Why the breakdown? Well, the short answer, I think, which also provides us with a corrective, if we can get to a short answer of the breakdown, then we can hopefully get to a corrective. But the short answer, I think, is that the, is that the marriage manual written by the creator of marriage and the creator of the family has pretty much been jettisoned for a, quote, more enlightened approach. But it's an enlightenment that has led us into familial darkness, hasn't it? The corrective then is to get the manual out and look at what the manual has to say about the family. And one of the key passages, the sections in the scripture that tells us, that helps us understand what God has to say about the family is found in Ephesians 5 in the first few verses of chapter 6. Now, let's set this in its context. In the context of this passage, you go all the way back to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul has been writing to the church at Ephesus and encouraging the Christians there to walk worthy of our calling as Christians. And what does that look like? Well, verse 2 of chapter 4, it, has look, it looks like having a humble attitude toward others within the church. In verses 3 through 6, it has to do with maintaining the unity of the church. Walking worthy in verses 7 through 16 involves appreciating, and here is, here is a unique lighthouse opportunity for the church. It has to do with appreciating and employing the diversity of gifts in the church. It has to do with avoiding the old path of the pre-conversion life. We see that in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 4. It has to do with walking worthy as a follower of Christ 
has to do with properly, uh, being properly outfitted with Christ-likeness in this world. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, walking worthy of our vocation as Christians has to do with traveling with the right partners along the journey. And in verses 8 through 17, it has to do with having our eyes wide open to who we are, strangers and pilgrims in this world, who we are, children of light, as he says in verses uh, 8 and following, and we need to walk as children as, as light of light, and also need to have our eyes wide open as to where we are. Where are we? We are in a time and place where the days are evil. Now, in chapter 5, verse 18, through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul exhorts us that the worthy walk is marked by submissiveness, submission. This is clear in verses 18 through 21, where we need to, be, we need to employ mutual submission in the church. Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And then he picks up with a family. So let's read together verses 18 through 24 this morning, and we'll, uh, we'll confine our remarks to this particular section. Verse 18, he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. This passage, it's going to go on through the end of the chapter, is referring to and talks about the mutual submission that is the responsibility in the home and in the marriage relationship between husbands and wives. But it's not the kind of submission that is a slavish submission. I don't know how many of you saw the image which was really distressing of the... Um, a couple of really uh, bully-looking black guys who had a white woman kneeling down before them and telling her that she needed to kiss their feet, and she did so. That is slavish submission. That is absolutely not, not what Paul is talking about when he talks about the mutual submission that must be, uh, must be a part of the marriage relationship. Where, <laughs> Calvin puts it this way. He says, where love reigns, where love reigns, mutual services or mutual submission will be rendered. But without rendering this loving mutual service, the marriage crumbles. When everybody's living for himself and everybody is marked by selfishness and having to have their own way, the marriage crumbles. And when the marriage crumbles, the family fragments and society deteriorates. So it's really important that we get marriage right and allow, us to be, allow ourselves to be transformed by 
what God has to say about the relationship that He designed between husbands and wife, wives. This beginning of this exhortation, this passage on the family, begins with Paul's call for Christ-like submission. Christ-like submission. Now, what do we mean by submission? We're talking about submission in the New Testament in the New Testament context, as Ian Hamilton defines it, he says, uh, New Testament submission is the voluntary yielding in love, pursuing the interests of others, not your own, no matter how noble. It's a voluntary yielding in love, pursuing the interests of the others. This is the mindset of Jesus, isn't it? Remember what Philippians uh, chapter 2 tells us in verses 5 through 8? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to describe his mindset. What did he do? He, t- he humbled himself and became a man. He took him upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And he became obedient even unto death and a cross death at that. The picture of humble, loving submission. But this is also the mindset that's prescribed for every one of us who name the name of Christ. Paul, before talking about the the humility, the humble submission that Christ exhibited, he tells us as his followers, Christ's followers, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that's the nature of the definition of New Testament submission, a voluntary yielding in love. And it is this kind of submission that needs to be practiced in the home. Again, Ian Hamilton, he says this. He says, the great issue in family life is not how parents relate to children or how children relate to parents. It does often seem to be the big emphasis, doesn't it? How parents relate to children and children relate to parents. That's important. But the big issue, the great issue is how wives relate to their husbands and how husbands relate to their wives. Elizabeth Elliot uh, mentioned further that expands upon that idea. She says, the greatest good a father can do for his children is to love their mother. The greatest good a mother can do for her children is to love their father. So we're going to talk about that love that fathers need to have for their mothers and mothers need to have for their fathers uh, this week, and then two weeks from now, we'll do the rest of it. But this morning, I want us to consider how does a mother show her love for the children's father? How does she do that? Paul answers it at the beginning of verse 22. Wives, and literally he says this, wives to your own husbands. The word submit is understood, it's implied, it's inserted there. But he's following right on verse 21, where it says, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. So wives, here's how you show love for your husbands, by submitting to your husbands. How do we do that? What that involves is submitting to the, submitting to the appointed headship of the family, and that is the husband. This is a principle that's rooted in Scripture. So look at, uh, for example, at 1 Timothy chapter 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul deals with this matter of 
uh, the relationship between husbands and wives and men and women within the church, in the church context. And in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to usurp authority over the man, uh, but to be in silence. And we could talk about that, but we'll do that another time. But then look at his explanation. Here's the basis for that exhortation. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. But Adam was not deceived, but the woman uh, was deceived in, in the transgression. Adam was first formed, then Eve. What Paul does is appeals to the created order, and that serves as the basis or the root for this call to biblical submission of the wife to the husband. And it should be pointed out, and it must be emphasized, that this has absolutely nothing to do with, birth, with worth or value or importance or intelligence or anything like that whatsoever, as if the wife has to submit because the Bible says all men are superior to all women, and, and therefore, all, as a woman, I am inferior to my husband. He's got to be smarter and all the rest of this. No, that's not what this is talk, talking about. It's not what it's calling for. Remember, the New Testament concept of submission is a voluntary yielding in love. A voluntary yielding in love. So this principle then gets practiced in everyday life in this way. In the first place, it's carried out voluntarily, a voluntary yielding in love. Now, by the way, because it is to be a voluntary yielding in love, when that doesn't occur, husbands, don't demand it. Don't demand it. You don't go to your wife and say, woman, do as I say. You know, that, that doesn't accomplish anything. That doesn't, that doesn't enhance the relationship whatsoever. There may be occasions where, rare occasions, where there should be or there may need to be a gentle, loving reminder of the distinctive roles in the marriage relationship. There may be those kinds of times, but there is never, there is never, I, I shouldn't use never, but I, I really can't think of a time when it is appropriate for a man to be demanding submission like he's got to keep his wife under his thumb. No, the submission that is called for here is a voluntary submission on the part of the wife toward her husband. It also is to be carried out wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. That is, not with a sigh or a resignation that says, you know, you know, throw her eyes up and all that kind of stuff and her hands up. Okay, well, I got to do it because after all, I'm the wife. I'm reading uh, for my birthday, my, uh, my sister got me the biography of Ulysses Grant. By the way, did you know Ulysses S. Grant is not really named Ulysses S. Grant? His birth name was um, Hiram Ulysses Grant, and his initials were Hug. He got relentlessly uh, battered by his peers in school. Uh, so he quit calling himself Hiram, and he just called himself Ulysses Grant. And then somewhere along the way, the S got ad added in there. And he, he told his wife one day, he said, I, I don't even know what my middle name is. I, I, I have an S in my name, and I don't know what it is. And he didn't. But anyway, Ulysses Grant's parents 
were the kind where the dad was one of these, uh, you know, really kind of a ruthless authoritarian kind of a guy. And his mom hardly ever spoke. She hardly ever showed any emotion. No great expressions of love, but no real anger or anything like she she was just almost lacking affect you know what i mean she just she just kind of went along with everything not exactly a healthy marriage either right this is uh, 150 60 years ago no a wholehearted submission is the kind that is not simply a resignation it's not a sigh but it's the, there, is a, there is a sense of um, understanding the importance and the value of what I am doing in voluntarily and voluntarily yielding in love to my spouse. Then I would also point out that in practicing this principle in everyday life, it's carried out singly. So verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. So clearly, clearly what Paul is not talking about here is a, a, a kind of a universal subjugation of women to men, as if women are inferior to men. Not at all. In fact, if you take the, the, the teaching of Scripture as a whole, you find that Christianity elevates the, the view of women in any, in any society, almost any society. Well, that's not what it's talking about. Paul says... This, this, this uh, voluntary yielding in love is to be carried out to one's own husband, not to men in general. And then it's to be carried out thoroughly. Verse 24, Paul says, As the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In everything. Well, what about... Right? Isn't that, what, isn't that what always comes after that statement? In everything? Well, what about... Okay, let's do some whatabouts. Okay, what about if my husband asks me to do something that is unbiblical? Or if he makes a decision and expects me to go along with something that clearly violates the Scripture? What do I do? What you do is you say, we ought to obey God rather than men. You know, and sometimes... Uh, admittedly, sometimes a husband will make an unbiblical, unscriptural decision, a decision that violates what God has clearly revealed, and the wife has, has, has no say in it, and she has, to, she has to, and the family has to, suffer the consequences of his unbiblical behavior, his unbiblical choice. And it's not that she can rebel against it or anything else, but there, there, she's kind of stuck. But what I'm talking about, when we're talking about this voluntary yielding in love, what about when the husband asks me to do something or demands something of me that is clearly unbiblical? What do I do? You say, no, because you ought to obey God rather than men. Well, what about if, it's, what, about if what if what he's asking me to do is unreasonable? Do you know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? Martin Lloyd-Jones is an incredible a preacher, pastor uh, of Westminster Chapel in uh, London. His wife, Beth Ann, uh, was asked that very question. What do I do if my husband asks me to do something unreasonable? For example, she was asked, what if my husband wakes me up at 3 o'clock in the morning demanding I fetch him ice cream? Am I to get up and, uh, get up and go get it? 
And her reply was, yeah, there's someone over here who really loves ice cream, and it's, maybe this one hits a little too close to home over here. I, I don't know. But anyway, what Beth Ann uh, Lloyd-Jones said to that question was, yes, get up and get it. And then she said, and then phone the doctor, because clearly he is not a well man. Yeah. Now, by the way, in a couple of weeks, I'll talk to unreasonable men, uh, and I don't think there are very many of them. Uh, I, don't, I don't know of any of them in our congregation, but anyway, I will bring that up. But yeah, uh, what if it is something unreasonable? If it's something that's unreasonable and it's not illegal, um, voluntarily yielding in love. Matthew Henry uh, comments on this husband-wife relationship in this way, and I think understanding this imagery, and I think it's a good one, it's often used in marriage uh, ceremony, wedding ceremonies. Uh, understanding this description and the relationship that it, it illustrates will do away with the unreasonable demandedness of some men and will help a wife understand what Paul is getting at here in this call for submission. Henry wrote this. He said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, uh, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. I think that's excellent. I don't think I've ever read a better description of the kind of relationship that exists between a biblical married, married couple than that right there. So how does a woman, how does a woman uh, love her husband by being uh, submitted to him? I think secondly, by accepting that submission as a part of her obedience to Christ. Verse 22 says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as unto the Lord, as unto the Lord. So, the idea is this. This is something that the all-wise Lord has commanded. He has directed. And so, she accepts that. She accepts it as an obedience to the Lord. And in so doing, she provides a Christ-like example, doesn't she? Because Christ lived Himself under the headship of His Father, we read of that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, if you want to write that down and look it up in your, uh, in your spare time. But Christ existed. The Father sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners. And so by submitting to the headship of the household, the wife is expressing a Christ-like attitude as Christ submitted to the head of the household of the Trinity, if you will. Well, she also recognizes that what the husband, what, what's going on in this relationship, in this dynamic of the headship of the husband and the wife as voluntarily yielding in love, what's also going on is that she recognizes that Christ is at work even through her husband. In other words, the point is, it's as if 
the direction is coming from Jesus through her husband. Let me show this in another way. In Colossians chapter 3, turn over a few pages in your Bible to Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Paul is writing to uh, a different set of individuals. In this case, he's writing to servants who have masters. But he says to them in verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. There's that same phrase, do it as to the Lord and not unto men. And then he goes on to explain. He says, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the, the reward of the inheritance for, here it is, you serve the Lord Christ. So the godly wife who, who wants to follow the creator, the marriage, the creator of marriage is his manual. She realizes that in, in my voluntarily yielding in love to my husband, I am doing this as unto Christ. I am serving Christ. I am, I am not so much serving my husband, quote-unquote, as I am serving Christ. I'm doing it as unto the Lord. And then finally in verse 24, back in our text, Ephesians 5, verse 24. How does she carry out this loving of her husband through voluntarily yielding or submission? She does so by mirror, mirroring an ecclesiastical relationship. What I mean by that is what we read in verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. As the church is subject to Christ, how is the church to be subject to Christ? Does Christ want us to grovel in slavish fear? Is that what he's calling for? No, you know better than that. What Christ wants of us, and Ian Hamilton does a good job of, of laying this out for us, ask, asking and answering the question, how is the church to submit to Christ? It is, submit, it is to submit to Christ out of love to him who richly loved us. How do we submit to Christ? We submit to Christ out of love to him because of the, the great love for, with which he had for us. We commemorated that love just a few minutes ago, right? This great love that Christ had for us, well, well, how do we submit to Him? Out of love for that great love that He's given to us. Well, the application of that in the marriage relationship, I think, is that wives will submit to the leadership, the leadership of their husband, because she loves him. She loves him. And that in itself meets a, a God-given need in a man's nature. This is brought out, by the way, in verse 33, where it says, So let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, to the husband. And then to the wife, he says, And the wife see that she reverence her husband. And Paul, in concluding that whole passage, is is summarizing, here's what the other partner needs from you. Husbands, show love for your wife. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Wives, show reverence for your husband. That's what he needs. That's what he longs for. 
that kind of respect, that kind of loving respect out of love. How does the church submit to Christ? Does so with confidence, with confidence that, that, that Christ will never ask of the church something that is outside of what is best for that church, for the church. Christ is never going to ask the church to do something that will destroy the church. It's not His, not his heart. It's not His desire. And in this kind of a relationship that Paul is describing here in this passage, according to the Creator's manual for marriage, the wife, the godly wife, can offer this voluntary yielding in love to her husband easily, readily, when she is confident that what the husband is asking or the decision that the husband is making is being made out of a desire for what is best for the relationship, for the home, for the family, for their marriage, or for whatever. Admittedly, this all breaks down, doesn't it? When there is um, a suspicion of selfishness. But I think the benefit of the doubt and encourage wives in this way, give the benefit of the doubt that your man, your husband, isn't merely being selfish, that he's trying to fulfill his responsibility. And if you can't be confident of that, then question it. Ask about it. Is this, is this decision being made because you really believe it's the best thing for us, the best thing for our family, the best thing for our children, the best thing for our financial situation. Is it, is that, or, or is this just really something you want? There's not anything wrong with having that kind of a conversation. When you're convinced, you give the benefit of the doubt that this is in the best interest, your husband is trying to do what is best in his making of this decision, then enter into that submissive spirit with confidence. How does Christ want the church to submit to him? With spiritual direction. And the idea here is that the Lord never asks the church to do something that is contrary to his revealed will, to his revealed will. So when, when we submit to Christ, we are submitting to that which God has revealed for us to do. We use our minds, we use our heads, we are guided by the Word. So the application of this to the marriage relationship is that your husband makes a decision that requires your response. What is your response? And why do you respond in that particular way? Is the husband given understanding, given insight into the decision? discussed it, talked about it, said this is what I think we need to do and this is why. Well, with that kind of direction, what do you do? How do you respond? Do you respond with a reluctant compliance? Is that how Christ would have us respond to His Word? Do you respond with a flagrant rejection? Again, would Christ have us respond in such a way? Do you respond with a 
convenient forgetfulness? Or do you respond with a cheerful acceptance of that which has been given, the decision that has been made? How do you respond? So this whole matter of submission is not a popular one. It's not one that is held up as being virtuous in our day. But I think when we understand the nature of what Paul is getting at here, a voluntary yielding in love, and the relationship is one that is built upon that kind of, uh, that kind of an affinity and affection, a commitment to one another, then voluntary yielding in love is really not a difficult thing when you get down to it, is it? There may be someone here today whose first step of voluntary yielding in love would be to voluntary yield, voluntarily yield to Christ. There may be some who, maybe someone here who, who has never, never repented of your sin and submitted to Christ's call to turn from your sin and to trust Him as your Savior. There's the starting point of every good godly, loving relationship. I implore you to start there today. And I encourage husbands, love your wives. Wives, see that you reverence your husband. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the very practical instruction and insight from your word in the most commonplace and, in, and essential relationships and the planet, in the marriage relationship. I pray that our desire and our passion would be to be like Christ in His relationship to the church and the church's relationship to Him. And this we pray in Jesus' name.